Greetings and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, back from a brief August hiatus, and what a time to parachute back in because after weeks of dead silence on the NBA transaction front, we got ourselves a blockbuster yesterday with Donovan Mitchell being shipped to the Cleveland Cavaliers. So here's the thing. My co-host, Joseph Cacharo, is ostensibly on vacation. And as such, I lined up a guest for this show. Uh, His name is Samson Folk. He is one of my favorite writers, podcasters, video breakdown artists in the game. He covers the Raptors at Raptors Republic in written form, in audio form, and video form. Uh, But he's not just a Raptors analyst. He has other outlets where he gets to be an NBA generalist. He puts out the Minute Basketball newsletter, excellent Minute Basketball newsletter with Louis Zatzman. He formerly co-hosted the Dearly Departed Bouncing Around podcast with Evan Galberto. Uh, and one day, Blake Murphy might even be nice to him online. Samson, it's, uh, it's really good to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a blast. This is, anytime somebody asks, like, what is the best league-wide podcast? This is it. Um, pound the rock a lot of people try to do it it's tough to cover the league I understand when people fall short I I think everybody falls short at least you know with some teams with whatever but you guys man in the gargantuan I guess labor of trying to cover the league this podcast is my favorite as far as just dipping into the league and seeing what comes out it's it's flattery like that that gets you invited onto this show appreciate (laughs) that Appreciate that, Samson. My spider, your uh, senses were tingling so much that I just parachuted in to join this podcast. Wolfon did not invite me to it. I heard Samson praising Pound the Rock and parachuted in to be part of this. Speaking of parachuting in, you may hear some fighter jets roaring past my window in the background. Uh, The Toronto Air Show is on right now. One of my least favorite annual traditions, but on it goes. So apologies for any interruptions that might cause to this show. But yes, you are hearing the voice of uh, Joseph Cacharo, a would-be vacationer who has done us the kindness of joining for this portion of the pod where we're going to talk about the Donovan Mitchell trade because basically Samson and I had a big picture NBA conversation teed up for this episode and we still intend to have that conversation. But first, the three of us are going to uh, break down this very interesting trade. So the full accounting is the Cavs are getting Donovan Mitchell. 25-year-old, three-time All-Star with three years left on his contract. And in exchange, they're sending out Colin Sexton, who was an RFA. Cash, you and I talked, I don't know if it was the last episode we were on together or maybe two episodes ago. We were wondering how that whole Sexton situation was going to resolve itself. Safe to say, neither of us saw this being the way that it wound up. But uh, he's going out in what's going to be a sign and trade for him and essentially getting a four-year, $72 million deal from the Jazz. Lowry Markkinen is also outgoing. Uh, Oche Agbaji, the the first-round draft pick of the Cavs in this most recent draft, is going, as well as three unprotected first-round picks and two unprotected swaps. Cash, as much as I appreciate you jumping on uh, in the midst of your vacation, I do want to give the floor to our guest first, and specifically for this reason, because... Samson, you and Lewis put out a Minute Basketball edition early last season called The State of the Wing. 
in which you essentially tried to deconstruct some of the myths about the value of wings in today's league and came to the conclusion that wing players might be a bit overrated and that we're kind of in more of a guards and bigs dominated league now uh, than we were a few years ago. And I do think it's worth pointing out that at the time you published that edition of the newsletter, the Celtics were scuffling badly. <laughs> yeah. And the crux of Lewis's entry in that newsletter was that Boston was this team that was kind of stuck in the past, trying to build around these two wing creators and paying the price for it. And we all know where the Celtics season went from there. So, you know, despite that particular take maybe aging a bit poorly, I think your general point about the way people can maybe, you know, misconstrue or miscontextualize the value of wings today still applies. And that's why I'm so excited to hear your thoughts about this Cavs team, because they're building the whole plane out of guards and bigs. You know, like they've got this dynamic, offensively potent, but very small backcourt with Mitchell and Darius Garland and this defensively stout, gigantic frontcourt with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen and not much in between. So they are like the no wings kings of the NBA right now. And this was true of them last year too. Like they were starting Lowry Markinen at the three. So it's not a new problem, but it does feel like in using all of their best trade stuff, you know, putting all their eggs in the Donovan Mitchell basket, they've maybe closed off a potential avenue to acquiring that type of bridge player in the future. You know, the kind of wing who could bridge their front court and their back court. So from that perspective, uh, I want to put it to you. What, what do you think about this trade? And I guess more broadly about the way that the Cavs are building their roster. Don't cross the bridge, shoot the ball over the river, maybe. And like Evan Mobley and Jared Allen can join hands and, and bridge the gap that way. It's it's interesting. The you know, the state of the wing was really funny because Lewis, once again, yeah, he, he wrote about those Celtics. And uh, now NBA employed Hank Ward messaged me and said, hmm, because he had disagreed a lot at the time. And this, there's actually on my Twitter, you can see there's a video. I was recording an episode with Jackson Frank and we re reacted to this trade live and we were both like, oh, holy hell, this kind of seems awesome. And the biggest takeaway was that if you were somebody who thought that Colin Sexton was an important part of the Cavs future, which I thought, you know, obviously they did end up moving on from him, but I certainly didn't think he was dead in the water there. I thought there was lots of potential to do interesting things. I like Colin Sexton. And Donovan Mitchell is, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to Sexton, but it's kind of like you turn up a lot of the good things about Sexton and you just like, now it's Donovan Mitchell. I, I know a lot of people with like on-off stats, with the defense and stuff like that, and, and especially with how potent the Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert pairing has been, they might say, does does Mitchell need a lot of winning is he putting up stats like and how compatible is he with two bigs? Because typically the the playmaking aspect that Mitchell has struggled the most with has been laydowns, lobs, all this kind of stuff, the interior stuff really near to the basket. But he's always been so inventive and great at penetrating, collapsing, and then finding people out on the perimeter. Darius Garland is gonna make a lot of threes by, you know, an underrated part of Garland's game is how much he moves off ball. And how good he is at sniffing out like these little opportunities, these little soft spots. And I think that there's going to be a ton of great synergy between those two. They're both brilliant. I mean, Garland is 
one of the best pick and roll machines in the NBA. You just give them a guy to screen with and you're getting reads that are advantageous, that give you good shots. And the Cavs last year were so reliant on that. Probably an under-discussed thing last year. And then you insert Donovan Mitchell. And this is the interesting part is that Colin Sexton, while I think giving you quite a bit of upside and being a very interesting player, did not factor into the Cavs' big year last year, really. And Lowry Markinen, there were things that he definitely looked better in the context of the Cavs than he had with the Bulls, maybe. You're still not losing a lot for this shot at this player. And the draft capital, I mean, people can dive into the draft capital. That's perfectly fine. But from my point of view, apart from losing one of the handsomest men in the NBA, Ogbaji, like real handsome dude, by the way, that guy, holy smokes. But it seems like an absolute win for the for the Cavs. I just think that team is going to be awesome. I, that didn't really answer your guards and bigs aspect of it outside of like the little, you know, catch all at the start. But uh, I, I hope that suffices at least for an opener. That's I didn't necessarily need you to answer the specific question because it's not it's not so much about to me, I guess it's less about trying to patch that one specific hole, which they will have to do like and we can get into how. But, you know, I, I'm more interested in how the strengths of this particular team are going to play up, like how Mitchell is going to play into them. You mentioned the potential synergy with Garland and how well Garland plays off the ball. I actually think Mitchell's a, a really underrated off-ball player as well. Like mm-hmm. as a second side attacker, he's really, really good. And I, I think there's a lot of potential for those guys to do some really interesting things playing together. And then maybe even more pertinent than that, like the Cavs were a train wreck offensively when Garland hit the bench last year. Like 103 points per 100 possession, worse than the 30th ranked Thunder. And now the ability to stagger those two guys, I just think that problem kind of goes away. And I I also sort of feel that cash, I I guess I'll put this to you actually, because, you know, this is sort sort of a conversation that we've had a lot uh, in our time podcasting together, but you have this pretty porous setup at the point of attack with Mitchell and Garland there. And then you have a Coro, uh, and he's the guy I think who's going to be relied on a lot to be a bit of a stopgap on the edge, you know, before essentially it has to be like an emergency rotation from one of Allen or Mobley on the back line. Yeah, I can't remember who who tweeted it. Someone tweeted that um, Garland and Mitchell should do what quarterbacks usually do for their offensive line. They should buy Okoro a Rolex the way quarterbacks <laughs> usually do for their offensive line before the season starts. For real. Like it's... It's going to be a lot on his shoulders. I don't know that he's quite up to that. But then that's where we get into this. Like, I'm thinking about it as, okay, Okoro's this 6'5 guy who's, who's a pretty strong one-on-one defender. I, I don't think he's quite there as a help defender yet. It reminds me very much of, like, what was asked of Royce O'Neal, like being this that's kind of undersized yeah. wing who has to be the primary perimeter stopper without really any perimeter help. Like, it's really all on him. And... I, I think we saw, like, even with an all-time great rim protector in Rudy Gobert behind him, it wasn't enough. But I think there is a huge difference between just having one of those guys back there and having two. And I think, actually, like, a really underrated defensive problem the Jazz have had over the last couple of years is having, like, zero secondary rim protection. And the Cavs have that. Like, they have Mobley and Allen. And I think that that makes a big difference. So is that enough? You know, between Okoro, Mobley, and Allen, is that enough to protect the Garland-Mitchell backcourt defensively? 
I think it's enough to protect them enough that they will need protecting given the amount that I think they can score and how good they are overall as a team. Like if you're asking me, is it enough protection to build like a top five defense with Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland at the point of attack, I'd say probably not because that's almost almost impossible to do maybe with those two guys at the point of attack. But given how good I think the team can be overall, given how good I think the offense can be with those two guys together, I think having Mobley and Allen behind them and Okoro there as well, is again, I think it's enough to make their defense good enough for what they need it to be. And like you said, you know, in, in Utah, yes, they had the historically great rim protector behind them, but that's what they had. And yeah, Royce O'Neal's a good one-on-one defender, but for the most part, Utah's defensive strategy for a long time now, because of how porous point of attack defense has been and how barren the defense other than Gobert has been, has literally just been, please, Rudy, please bail us out of this. Time and time again, every time down the court. I think... The roster and the team Donovan Mitchell is joining in Cleveland, even though they don't have Rudy Gobert, I think the defensive infrastructure is better than what he left in Utah, despite the fact they had Gobert at the time, just because I think there's more help in Cleveland. And obviously when you've got the two guys, like the behemoths behind them, if you're going to gamble on a, a small, porous defensive backcourt like Garland and Mitchell, you really can't ask for much more defensive insurance than Mobley and Allen behind them, right? So again, given how good I think they could be on the other end, and I know uh, I've seen people tweet as well, like the concerns were once like, well, if you've got two bigs and a Coro on the court, though, doesn't that hamper your offense? And I do understand those concerns as well. But at the same time, it's like, man, you've got Donovan Mitchell and Darius freaking Garland on the same team. To your point, Wolfon, too, like you talked about uh, the Cavs, really sinking offensively with Garland off the court last season and and staggering it. It's like, yeah, you know what will help that? It's being able to stagger his minutes with the guy who the last two years has been top five in overall usage rate while anchoring the number one and number four offense respectively in those two years. Like we can argue about whether Donovan Mitchell drives winning and how much he's really been tied to those Utah offenses. But like this guy is an absolute offensive wonder. And he does a little bit of everything despite being, I guess, you know, you could say undersized for a scorer of his magnitude. Um, Last year, roughly 26 points and five assists, shot better than 53% inside the arc, 36% on nearly 10 to three-point attempts per game, 85% from the line. Among 27 players who used at least 400 possessions as the pick-and-roll ball handler last season, Mitchell was the NBA's most efficient. Among the 35 most ISO-heavy players, he was the ninth most efficient. He was one of the most efficient high-volume drivers. For what Cleaning the Glass considers combo guards, he ranked 83rd percentile in assist rate. Garland actually ranked 88th percentile among what they considered point guards. So I think the playmaking will be fine. Just any way you slice it, Donovan Mitchell is an insanely talented offensive creator. And pairing him with a guy like Darius Garland to me is just like a a no-brainer on offense. I think they work well together uh, to Samson's point. I think Garland's a really good off-ball player and I think he's going to be able to show that even more now like even when you consider all the picks and all the capital they surrendered and I'm sure maybe we would get to this later anyway but like if you're Cleveland and we've had so many conversations Wolf on I made a whole video about it, like about how rare it is for a multi-time like perennial all-star to hit the trade market with this much team control in his mid-20s like Cleveland just traded for an elite, 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 elite offensive stars age 26 to 28 seasons. That is just about unprecedented. And 
I think you also have to consider like the team or the market that did it too, right? Like everyone's always talking about small market disadvantages and a team like Cleveland, whatever. It's like, you can talk about all the asset capital they gave up, the draft capital they gave up. Could they have been more patient? Could they have waited all this? If you're sitting there like with a straight face telling me that you think at some point in the next few years or while this core is really, really locked in together, that you think, oh, like Cleveland could have had a better chance like than this. Like, dude, it you know how rare it is for a player this good to be available with this much team control to a place like Cleveland because he had team control. It's not a free agency thing. They're not gambling on a one-year rental. I don't believe Cleveland would have got a better chance than this to impact their team the way they did on the trade market free, like any way you look at it than getting Donovan Mitchell. And so when I look at it like this and look at everything he can do on the court offensively, even with the defensive concerns, even with the wing concerns, all of that, I still think it's a no brainer. Even when you're giving up control of five first round picks, because I think the ability to acquire a talent like Mitchell is so unprecedented at the stage he's in the team control, all of that. And, uh, and then when you look at it too, now it's like they're between the big, they're big four, if you want to call it that with, you know, Mobley, Allen, uh, Garland and Mitchell, although obviously Garland and Mitchell aren't big by any, uh, stretch of the imagination, but you know what I mean? When I say big four, they're all under contract for at, through at least 2025. Like, is there a risk in between 2025 and 2029 when they don't control their own first rounders? Of course there is, but you got to take risks to build a team this good and, like the only way you can, you you draft players and you trade for you do all this to build a team like this, right? And yes, they're not perfect, but it's very rare that you'll be able to build a perfect team like the KD led Warriors. Like that's not going to happen unless you also have a free agency advantage. So I think in Cleveland's situation and their um, where they are, I really think everything lined up that this was the perfect deal at the perfect time, even with all the risk considered. If I can jump into in a more specific like defensive, uh, when we think about having the conversation about Donovan Mitchell, where his defense has been, where it's likely to go and how it's insulated and the I guess the conversation around effort. It's interesting to think that the Cavs are perfectly insulating his technique, but they're not insulating his effort. So Mm. the Cavs like Rudy Gobert has not just rim protector, but paint patroller. But that's still not as effective at dissuading drives as Mobley in tandem with Jared Allen. And so Mitchell isn't going to be able to just randomly start stopping guys at the point of attack. However, he will have to filter to less places on the court because there's going to be a bubble pushing guys out to the perimeter on a lot of the drives. So Mitchell's, the way he filters after getting beat peels off of guys, all that kind of stuff, it's going to be easier and there's less ground to cover in those situations. So while effort doesn't fix everything, there is a pretty short exercise of effort he can do defensively that now he can already cover a pretty big gap in his defense just by giving a little bit more of, you know, an effort because he obviously didn't care that much. And there is countless clips of him, like just kind of spinning around on defense, but yeah. He's going to have to occupy smaller spaces defensively, and I think that'll help a lot, especially if he's more inclined to pay attention to where he's supposed to be rotating to. For sure. I think the peel switching in particular is a really important point because that's something that in the playoffs, I feel like Utah just failed at time and time again. Like when their guards would get beat on the perimeter and Rudy's sliding over to cover them, nobody's peeling off to the shooter in the corner. Like they're not Xing out. They're not 
covering for the weak side shooters. And that's how you see them getting buried, you know, under a barrage of threes. And everyone's looking at Gobert, like trying to cover two guys at once and thinking it's his fault. And it's, I just never understood why they couldn't make that adjustment. And so I am curious to see, like, this is something the Cavs were really good at last year. They actually, their scheme was designed to funnel guys towards the basket. They allowed the sixth highest frequency of shots at the rim in the league, but they were number one in limiting opponent field goal percentage at the rim. So that was by design, but that requires their, you know, point of attack defenders to actually do the funneling, to to guide those ball handlers essentially to where they want them to go and then to peel off and they did a great job of that last year because the, the rim shots they allowed came at the expense of opponent three-pointers. Like they were one of the best teams in the league at suppressing opponent three-point attempts. So I think that will essentially be what their scheme is designed to do again because that's where their strengths lie. So it will certainly be incumbent on Donovan Mitchell to do those little things. I do think he's capable. He has the physical tools to do it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, so we're going to see if that works. Um, I mean... I don't, you know, from a, from a more simplistic kind of just one-on-one perspective, I'm thinking this team might have a challenge when it comes to defending teams with multiple big perimeter creators, you know, the Celtics potentially, uh, you know, the Clippers are in the opposite conference, so we won't worry about them, but the Bucks, you know, with, uh, I think I'm thinking about like point bigs or like point forwards and, and whether it's you know, Giannis, Pascal Siakam, Bam Adebayo. I feel like Mobley and Allen have the mobility to cover those types of players. But maybe the the Durant types and the Jason Tatum types and Jimmy Butler, like those guys might pose a challenge for Cleveland. Even the Bulls, man, with like Levine and DeRozan, right? Like multiple bigger creators. I think that could give the Cavs problems when they're running out a starting lineup that has two six foot one guys in it. And this isn't, you know, Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, right? Like these are six, one guys who are also defensive minuses. It's going to be really great opening night to see the Pascal Fred pick and roll. And just what are the Cavs doing there? Are they, they probably are going to be like, okay, we're going under. And then is Pascal going to start like bully driving and like worming his way into the paint and disrupting I, I'm really interested to see because that's going to, you know, big creator and they're going to do a lot of guard screening, even with Gary Trent as well, too, to see, OK, how do they start trying to hide Garland and Mitchell from the outset? And then also we're going to get to see Mobley's range and probably, you know, especially, well, especially with Garland and Mitchell against a team that's like, oh, we'll pull off both corners, strong side, weak side. We'll throw everybody into the middle and we will start the the gambit of like rotation, right? And Mitchell and Garland with Mobley, with Allen, man, there's going to be a lot of like outside, inside passing and inside, outside passing. That game is going to rock. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess who would be better this year? The, the Raptors or Cavs? Probably most people would lean Cavs. But I, I guess we have to see if there's leaps being made by the Raptors. But that that first game is going to rock. I'm excited for that. Yeah, and, and two teams. I mean, we kind of saw a taste of it last year just with Scotty and, and Mobley. But two teams that I think, um, although Pascal and Fred are obviously a little older I, think, older, I think these are two teams that will be linked for a while in terms of the way they grow within this improving Eastern Conference. Like, I think they'll be hearing a lot from each other for many years. And to your point, Wolf, on about the Cavs potentially having trouble with the bigger wing creators. I agree with you. 
And I, and I think that's why, you know, you can point to maybe like this year in the immediate future and being like, okay, they're going to be better. They're more talented. They're ready to take the next step. They're not really ready to truly contend yet or compete for a title this year. But I think the beauty of what they've constructed here is that they, though it feels like they're now in a rush because they just traded for Donovan Mitchell and they got rid of control of five first round picks. The beauty of this is that they're not really in a rush, right? Because they got Mitchell for three more years. Garland's locked up, I think, already till 2028. Mobley obviously has, you know, three more years on his rookie scale, plus the extension after that when it's still team control. So, like, Allen's got the new contract. Like, they, they've got this core so locked in that they can see what this year is like. They can see where the deficiencies are, what else they need to address. It'll be a bit harder, obviously, without picks, but they've got enough talent there in youth and team control contracts that, they can see what they still need to add and continue to build around this extremely promising core and not feel like they have to rush like most teams would after making a trade like this. And again, that's why I just, as much as I understand the, like, you know, people concerned with the risk of it and all that, I just continue to keep coming back to the fact that for me, it's a no brainer for the Cavs because yeah, as I said, it's like you draft and you trade and you build for years to build a team this good and this young, and they've succeeded in now doing that. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. In spite of, you know, whatever red flags may exist or the lack of wings, defensive concerns, like I think uh, this is a a trade that you can't turn down and an opportunity you can't pass up to get a player as good, as young, and under control for as long as Donovan Mitchell is. So with all that in mind, I think it's it's basically like a home run trade for Cleveland. And... You can't Had scheme a- your way into Donovan Mitchell, but you can try and scheme around him, you know, like, like maybe that. What like, do you mean by that exactly? Well, you, you can't like, as we saw with, you know, trying to be an inventive coach and stuff like that, you can't scheme your way into all the numbers that, that Joe rattled off about like, wow, this guy's a wondrous creator. You just, you can't, you can't get behind a clipboard. You can't sit down and be like, how do we tease this out of an offense? You can't. Right. However, you can look at the limitations that come along with Donovan Mitchell and NBA defenses are as inventive as they've ever been. And some people are figuring out how do we scheme around that? So that, that would be probably my biggest takeaway is lean towards the optimism of like, you, you just can't make this happen, but you can try and hide it. And may, maybe it shows in the light of the playoffs, but you have years to figure it out, as both of you guys have said. I think the matchup I might be most interested to see this year is Cavs versus Clippers, like the diametric opposites, the one team with no wings and the one team that is only wings. Well, it could it could end up kind of like the like you talked about minute basketball. Luce and I wrote about this and we called it the Maginot line. After World War One, France built this giant line to keep Germany out. And then by that time, trench warfare was already obliterated. And Germany just went like with the third right. They went around. And it's like, well, damn, the Maginot line didn't work. And Rudy Gobert was the Maginot line. Maybe Mobley and Jared Allen are the Maginot line. Like this incredible force of, they're like, we built this. You will not get through this. And like, you know, they went around it. And maybe the Clippers just go over it like they did in the playoffs against the Jazz. You know, it's like, oh, we'll just shoot. You can keep Rudy there. Yeah. You know? (laughs) And that, listeners, is why you need to be subscribed to Minute Basketball for (laughs) analogies like that. Um, But yeah, no, I, I think... Uh, the Cavs are very interesting to me because they are cutting against the grain a little bit. They were doing it last year with the way they built their front court. And I think they're doing it now with 
you know, the way that they are kind of playing their backcourt and frontcourt off of each other and trusting that they can, you know, patch things together in between uh, those two entities to the point that they can make it all fit. And and maybe Okoro is just like the missing piece, like the guy, not a missing piece because he, he's there, uh, but the piece that can grow large enough or shape shift enough to make it all fit together. Um, I'm a little bit less optimistic about that. I'm, I'm not uh, a huge Okoro optimist, but he's 21. So maybe, maybe he's the guy who can make it work. Either way, I'm just really interested to see what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at worst, they're going to be a really cool viewing experience, like a, a really cool watch, you know, and just a cool team to kind of, whether you're rooting for them, you don't, you're indifferent. I think they'll just be a really fascinating experiment to start off anyway, to see what they can be, how quickly they can be it, and, you know, maybe what the ceiling is for them in the immediate future. But the the possibilities when you start to think about it again, even just as Mobley gets better, man, like when you think about what Evan Mobley can be even a couple of years from now, with Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland on his team. Like, Cavs fans just got to be over the moon right now. Yeah. And I also want to say, like, when a trade like this happens, there is always such a rush to be like, oh, how good are they really? Are they going to contend for a championship? Are they really going to make it past the second round? Was it worth it to give up all this draft capital when you're not actually going to be a true contender? Everyone's saying that, like, about the Hawks when they went and traded for DeJounte Murray. They were saying about the Wolves when they traded for Rudy Gobert. And I just hate that line of thinking so much. Like, I am so much more interested in just a a team that sees an opportunity to dramatically improve, sees, like, a a player out there that can really help in innumerable ways. And, like, for, for the Cavs, I mean, look, they last year they lost. Sexton they lost Rubio and then suddenly it was only Garland like he was the only guy who could create off the bounce he was I think fourth in the league in average time of possession behind only Doncic Harden and Trey Young you know like the preeminent heliocentric operators in the game and to Samson's point like that was doing a disservice to his great off-ball skill and utility right so you see a player who can help your team as a whole, help your your most important young player in the process. And I think go out and get that player, whatever it costs, and see what happens. And if they aren't a contender, if they don't make it past the second round for you know the three years that Donovan Mitchell is there, if they can't re-sign him three years from now, well, then so be it. But like you tried and you did something worthwhile. And, and I think that's, I, I'm just way more interested in that than saying, well, like, was it worth it because you're not going to win a championship? You know, it's just, that's that's not the way that I like to look at things. And again, like, if you look at the way the Cavs have been building and the fact that, contender or not, you could have looked at a, a young core of Mobley, Garland, and Allen, who were all locked up anyway, and thought, at the very least, this team should be competitive for a while. I don't think anyone was looking, you know, years down the line and being like, oh, you know, the Cavs are going to be right back at the top of the lottery like four or five years from now. So you were probably looking at a situation where even if they weren't good enough years from now, they're also probably like a middle of the pack, maybe uh, mid-teens to like whatever, early 20s draft team anyway. So like it's not like they've surrendered or mortgaged the future while being this, you know, uh, seller dwelling lottery bound team, and they've they've made all these moves to go from like a 19 win team to a 26 win team. Like they had a really good young infrastructure in place, 
and they traded for Donovan friggin' Mitchell with three years left of team control. And they, like I said, for his age 26 to 28 seasons, like they now have Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Evan Moby, Jared Allen under contract for at least the next three to six years between the four of them. And you look at it as like what for people that to Wolfon's point are saying things like, wow, like, you know, are they really a contender though? It's like how much better of a team than what I just listed, did you think the Cleveland Cavaliers were going to build if they didn't make this trade but kept all those picks between 2025 and 2029? Because I'll give you the answer. They would not have built a better team than this, most likely, okay? Could we guarantee things? No, but percentages-wise, very, very, very unlikely. They would have been able to, be able to build a better team. So you do this, you grow with this team, and you might put yourself in position to contend at some point. You're a lot closer to doing that today than you were yesterday. And also to that point, that's even why, not to somehow make this about clowning the Knicks, but that is also why, you know, even though I I see some people saying, you know, no, like the Knicks actually made the right move. They didn't go all in to join the middle of the pack. But it's like, again, given the draft capital they had, given how rare Donovan Mitchell is in terms of the availability of a star like this, that is, as I told Wolfon, I think on a previous podcast, like in my mind, Donovan Mitchell is actually the exact kind of star. And at the point of his career, he's the kind of star that Knicks have been trying and failing to get for the last like 30 years, 25 years. And now there was an opportunity to get them. Like it was okay this time to actually mortgage a lot of your future and go a little bit more all in and just get that guy in the door for a few years and see what you can start building them around them. Like, this, this notion is like, oh, well, this team's not, they're not a contender right away, though. What's the point of this? It's like, to me, that only makes sense as a criticism if it's like this really aging team who's maybe got one bullet left in the chamber from an asset standpoint and they wasted on like Russell Westbrook in 2022 or something. Like, sure, then I get it. But in the cases we're talking about, in, the, in terms of the move Cleveland made, in terms of the move the Knicks didn't make, in those cases, I do not understand the criticism. Like it's like, no, you get a chance to bring in Donovan Mitchell, you do it, and then you see what comes after. Play cool basketball, man. Yeah, Try and be cool. That's the whole deal. That's the flex. Play cool basketball for sure. Agreed. I think that's a great place to uh, leave this portion of the conversation. <laughs> so, looking forward to seeing the Cavs play cool basketball. Uh, Cash, thanks for jumping on for this portion. Get back to your vacation, and uh, I'll talk yes, to you sir. soon, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on, Samson, and uh, look forward to listening to the rest of this conversation later. Yeah, I'll see you, brother. Take care. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Samson. While I've got you here, let's talk some macro NBA stuff. Because as much as I enjoyed the Donovan Mitchell conversation, that was not my original intent in inviting you onto this pod You've had me on your podcast a few times, and you know we usually talk about the Raptors, conversations I really love, but I feel like uh, the stuff that I enjoy talking with you most about is that kind of big picture, you know, kind of like the bird's eye view of the league and, and where we're at and where we're going. And that's, that's what I want to talk to you about now, like as we look toward a new NBA season, what does the league look like to you in terms of 
stylistic trends, tactics, aesthetics. That's that's what I want to get into. So I'll start you off with this. Is there maybe an under the radar stylistic trend that you see emerging? You know, something that isn't as obvious or that people haven't talked about all that much. Is there something there that you're keeping your eye on as, you know, maybe maybe it's just a niche trend that exists on the margins and doesn't necessarily take hold in the mainstream, or maybe it's, uh, you know, a, a, a forerunner to the next evolutionary advancement in the game. Is there anything like that in particular that you're keeping tabs on right now? The thing that's probably more relevant than it is talked about is the that we're kind of in a grind ball era. You know what I mean? It's you really defenses have gotten so good at taking away the first, second, third options. And we didn't get to have that full conversation because the Warriors won and the Celtics weren't the preeminent like grind ball winners. But I do think that that defensive grittiness is starting to show up in a lot of different places. And I don't mean this to like invalidate the whole conversation we had about Donovan Mitchell and defense and kind of like, oh, well, you'll just scheme for that. And you know, the the defensive things that they struggle with, they'll they'll figure out a way. But it's that Donovan Mitchell is a guy who grind ball. If it's making you go to that fourth option, that type of creation off the bounce, like the, the pull up shooting, all that kind of stuff is the panache that sometimes you have to save possessions and stuff like that. And it's it's really interesting to see that the Warriors, because they have all the tools to run the pick and roll and they decide that they don't want to run it really. But it meant that the Warriors were better equipped to deal with the physicality and overloading style of the Boston Celtics and definitely were able to make that adjustment. So the fact that defense is climbing back into the fray as, you know, it's been over the past few years, everybody talks about offense in the league, but defense is, man, defense has gotten the better of offense quite often, I think is probably not talked about enough. And then the really niche one, I talked about this with Caitlin Cooper on the loving basketball podcast I did with her. And there'll be a podcast that comes out of the outside looking in where we talk about the Raptors and Pacers, but this reimagining of the post as not a, a hub for scoring, but a way to invert defensive principles and to be the number one spot to play make out of Caitlin. I will not say it on this podcast because it was hers and she looked it up, but she found a stat that blew my mind about, the effectiveness of post-passing and how it relates to the Raptors and stuff like that. But my God, I think that's a really interesting wrinkle of NBA offense now is that it fell out of vogue and everybody really latched onto that Rick Carlisle, ironically quote about how it's like, well, it's a guarded shot. We don't want to take guarded shots. We want to take open shots. And it's like, well, it's a guarded player now. And maybe there's extra gravity there and players who grew up, in a you know in a basketball landscape where the post was like oh yeah if a guy has the ball in the post we're not really scared our help principles are a little bit different and more perimeter oriented you start with intelligent cutting off of post actions and stuff like that and suddenly guards trying to guard actions from the top down instead of down up or you know peeling off to the corners and stuff like that are a little bit out of sorts and especially if you combine more complex actions to involve you know maybe it's three players who are involved in an action suddenly the post is this wonderful multiverse of madness like you can be a wizard in there and create out of there and that probably doesn't get talked about enough 
if the Raptors are really successful this year, I I think that it might uh, receive more play. I'm really glad you mentioned both of those things. Uh, they're both things that I've written about, incidentally. So to to address the playmaking thing specifically, it's interesting to me because obviously you think about the interplay between like post-scoring gravity and the ability to be a post-playmaker. Like if you're Nikola Jokic and you're a devastating post-scorer and can consistently draw two to the ball, that's going to make your playmaking reads that much easier. You know, Not that Jokic needs his playmaking reads to be made easier for him to make them. Uh, he's maybe the best passer I've ever seen in my life, but obviously that makes it that much easier. And I think, you know, something I noted in the piece that I wrote about this, I didn't dig too deep into stats the way that Caitlin obviously did, but it was very anecdotal. And I went through a lot of Giannis uh, Antetokounmpo film and found that like, I think he made a huge post playmaking leap this past season. And that was in large part facilitated by the fact that he became a much more effective post scorer. So that's a big part of it. But to your point about just inverting the floor and maybe throwing a bit of a knuckleball at a defense that's not expecting to guard from the top down, like you look at the Warriors offense or the Miami offense where so much of it is predicated on like the high post split action. And it's not like, you know, when when Draymond Green or Bam Adebayo catches the ball like 18 feet away with their back to the basket, like they're not a threat to score from that position, but they're still finding playmaking opportunities out of it because of the way the offense is designed. And it's to the point that like there were games this year where you'd see teams fronting Draymond in the post just to prevent the Warriors from getting into that split action. And it's like, you can see how it's still a, a dangerous play and a dangerous setup and, and a dangerous position on the floor for a passer as gifted as, as Draymond, or maybe to a lesser extent, bam, uh, to find guys open cutting to the rim or behind the three point line. So I think that's a really interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, and to the to the point about defense and how like this postseason in particular, I feel like laid that bare. I mean, I think six of the last eight teams standing were top seven defenses during the regular season. The last two teams standing were the top two defenses. And I think it's an important point because people see these skyrocketing scores and offensive ratings and think that means that offense is besting defense, which I don't think is really true. I think offense has improved because people have started to clue into more efficient and more refined offensive process. You know, we talk about like shot profile optimization and I mean, just general shot making, I think has improved. Like the skill level is astronomical right now. So it's like offense is really good, but I don't think that's a sign that like defense has fallen by the wayside. Um, defense has had to play catch up, I think in a lot of ways, but to me, like watching this past postseason, it got to a point where, you know, I felt like defense was the more proactive entity, like defense was proactive and offense was reactive, where mm -hmm. most of the time it was like the defense that was setting the terms of engagement and the offense that had to react to what the defense was doing. That's I, I agree with that completely. And that's once once you see so much of a team, you, you're able to kind of load up on actions and then they have to go to something else. And teams have gotten so good at being able to load up from like the get go. We we saw it the the Raptors series was really interesting that how many how many games did it take for them to abandon Harden as the guy sitting above Maxi on, you know, like who's more dangerous? Yeah. It was game it took three. Took them too many it, games is the answer. Though. Yeah, yeah. It should have it, it should have taken zero. I mean, yeah. I'm a schlub and I had a like series <laughs> preview where I'm like if they invert how they want, like the attention they give to Maxi versus Harden, I think that'll be much better because 
they're going to leave gaps and Maxi is going to like step into those and make every shot. And Harden is going to be, have hesitation with the ball. And it's, it's interesting how different archetypes, like there's guys like Dean Wade or Nas Reed who on the Cavs and on the Timberwolves who immediately when they, when they come out and start playing, these are guys who have a great read for continuing advantage. And those guys playing next to guys who already are able to create is really interesting that it's on the one hand, there are guys who against some defenses like Boston, you're, you look at it and you're like, wow, you have to just be able to create from a standstill because that defense is going to put you at a standstill. But yeah. then there's like that slightly lower tier where guys like Nas Reed against Memphis, for example, right? Is that defense has a few more instances of mistakes than maybe the Warriors or maybe the Celtics. So it's like continuing advantage and just having that rapid processing, even if you're not great taking it from a standstill, can unravel a lot of what's going on. And tr defense is trying to get to that top tier so that they're not susceptible. And then offense is trying to value like okay continuing advantage versus creating it on how they build their roster and you know how much does a certain player cost and what skills are more valuable or seen as more expensive in the market and trade market free agent market or whatever it's fascinating to see how teams are trying to get one over on each other and you know as we talked about in the first half of the podcast is like well donovan mitchell is the answer to one of those questions we'll just see if he's the answer to winning that style yeah, and Donovan Mitchell is like part of a tier or like a category of player that's so interesting to me for this very reason because, to your point, that's the type of guy that you need in a playoff setting where a defense is taking away options one, two, three, four, and you need a guy who can just go and get you a bucket. And we've seen him be so good at doing that in a playoff setting, and that is so valuable. And yet, he can also just really compromise what you're trying to do at the other end of the floor. And so it's this balancing act that you have to try and figure out where you know defensive versatility has become so important and it's just hard to be defensively versatile with a defender who can't fit into a bunch of different types of schemes like it's hard to switch with donovan mitchell and like okay you want to play you know like drop and chase essentially and it's like is he the chaser for the job like it's it, it really impacts what you're able to do at that end of the floor and so while at one end of the floor he helps you best the type of you know defenses that we're seeing more and more advanced deep into the playoffs uh, at the other end, he's maybe preventing you from becoming that type of defense. And that's true of him. And it's true of Trey young and it's true of John Morant. Like it's, it's going to be really interesting to see, I think how those players and their teams can progress given those limitations, because I feel a maybe underrated part of golden state's success, their entire run, but especially this past postseason, was Steph was not a defensive liability. You know, like there were times where he got attacked, but for the most part, he held up. And I just think that was so huge as far as like maintaining the defensive integrity in Golden State. That's that's part of the answer with Mitchell, right, is that Mitchell, if he's going if you're going to option number four in your hierarchy of like what what is available to you on an offensive possession and Mitchell is giving you X amount of points per possession when you hit option number four, can Mitchell hang enough that you can scheme defensively so that the other team gets to option two or three, but Mitchell's still doing better. Like he's still amassing so many Garland and Mitchell are still amassing so many opportunities for you offensively that what you have to do to make up for them defensively 
yeah, and the, the Curry thing is especially potent is like a point to make is that you have to be able to, it doesn't mean you're overwhelming, but just hang so that the rest of your team kind of shading over and adjusting to that is, is a South, you know, it's something that can happen. I think that's all very interesting and is the question for quite a few dynamic guards like Trey Young, despite being, oh my God, I love watching Trey Young because he obliterates everything that sits in front of him, except for Miami in the playoffs, which was, that actually surprised me that they got the best of him. Same. uh, It seems like he solves every problem that sits in front of him. He's going to have to, he and the Hawks in tandem will have to solve the problem of defense. And it's going to look different for every player, but it's, uh, you have to try and solve the problems. But you also like, you, you can't solve not having an elite creator. As we saw, like Jason Tatum, hopefully he gets to that point. He's an elite creator in the sense that he is just absorbs so much attention, creates so much rotation. He makes pretty rote uh, reads of the floor, though. And so once he starts teasing out better passing and better playmaking from himself, that's when Boston takes that next step because they were very... Both they needed him so bad, but they were obviously limited. And you need a guy like that, which I, I that's the thing about basketball as interesting as it is. It so often comes down to like, well, you need that guy. Yeah. And then we see a team win with not that guy, but it's just the second tier of that guy. Really, it's you need great players and you need great schematics and you need a coach who's going to. I think call the right things at the right time. It's a it's a wonderful dance of all these intermingling things that it's it seems impossible to win the NBA title basically. Yeah, I mean it damn near is, right? <laughs> like it's it's so hard to do, which is why I think these conversations about well, this team's never going to win a championship are so silly because they suck, dude. <laughs> um but yeah, to your point about Tatum, very reactive playmaker in my mind and I think you know, to get back to that point about defense being more proactive and offense being more reactive, like the offensive players who can break that paradigm are, you know, the most valuable players in the league. And that's mm-hmm. like, it's it's just super rare where you have the offensive player who can actually just invert that and make the defense dance to their tune, move the defenders around where they want them to go. Like I'm thinking of Jokic and, and Steph uh, and LeBron, like those are the guys who can who can really reorient the geometry of the court. And that's, I mean, it's just so unbelievably valuable in an era where like defenses have become so advanced that they know exactly what they want to do. And when you like an offensive player comes around and kind of puts a different idea in the defense's head where suddenly they don't know what they want to do or what they're trying to do or what the best approach is to guarding this one player or this one action, um, then that just completely tilts things. So I, I think that, as much as anything, I mean, like that's that is what we saw in the finals, right? Because I don't think the Warriors' defense is necessarily better than Boston's defense, but they had Steph. There's Steph is his own thing, of course, because of the shooting. But with Jokic and LeBron and Luka, you can look to things that they were able to weaponize that weren't being weaponized that often. LeBron was the skip pass, and then the skip pass broke the NBA for a couple of years. Honestly, it did. Now the skip pass is a very, you know, if a, if a, if a prospect can make a skip pass, you go, Hmm, nice. Not like, wow, 2014. If a guy could make a skip pass, like live dribble, you're like this guy, the playmaking is off the charts, you know? And Luca 
was these spots in kind of the middle of the floor where his size and creativity is like a lot of players who get stuck in that position. That's a dead spot, but not for Luca because, you know, his footwork and his shot making in the intermediate spot is really great. And then just Jokic is so singular as a playmaker that I don't even like to cite him as like, oh, yeah, the post is being reinvented because he's just nobody's going to touch that. It's his own thing. But he takes dead spots on the floor and turns them into like magical hubs of creation and playmaking. And defenses are like, okay, we can shuttle them into here and then we're comfortable. But those are the guys who say, don't ever be comfortable because there's a play to be made for me at all times. Yeah, let's talk about Jokic for a second. Uh, because I, I did revisit that state of the wing piece that you guys wrote uh, in in prepping for the earlier portion of this pod. And what what really jumped out to me was I feel like, and you wrote this in that post, that basically like LeBron was everything in the NBA. And because LeBron was a wing, wings just sort of became the thing that you needed to have. And maybe there was a bit of like an over-indexing on that. And like LeBron is his own thing. Like this isn't, you know, a, a referendum on what wins in the league today. And I, t- to me, like that was sort of true of that period for big men as well, where there was this like prevailing sentiment that, you know, big men were going the way of the dinosaur. And I look back at that and I'm like, you know, maybe that was just a really fallow period for centers in the league. Like DeAndre Jordan was making all NBA teams mm-hmm. at the time. So I think it might have just been a period where there weren't that many good centers. And now I'm, I'm looking at the landscape of the league and it's like everybody wants to talk about the bigs sort of making a comeback. And you've got Jokic and you've got Embiid and you've got Carl Towns. And like those bigs obviously look fundamentally different than the bigs we saw even, you know, a half decade ago. But it also occurs to me that maybe Jokic is just his own thing and this isn't necessarily like the era of the center or like the revenge of the center it's just this one guy who has these paradigm shifting powers and we shouldn't over index on that either that that's i guess i'll put that to you like what do you what do you think wins in the nba today samson just to answer what you're saying that is exactly it the moment the moment a superstar is seen as washed the collective idea of that position it like just the consensus is that position is in a way worse place because we're we don't realize how superstar centric we are but it's like when a guy is donovan mitchell is not the the last bastion of the shooting guard position and and people wouldn't say oh the shooting guard is in a good spot because donovan mitchell is there but it to some degree, Donovan Mitchell is a representation of like combo guards. Wow. There like there's a bunch of good combo guards in the NBA and it looks different than what we thought combo guards were, so we just identified it as like, well, it looks like this star. And then once that star isn't there anymore to be the avatar of that position, of that archetype, that playstyle, we kind of lose sight of it. And what does win in the NBA today? Man, that's a really great question because <laughs> Wings are ideally the marriage of big and guard. And that's why we that's why everybody's obsessed with them is like LeBron James made, you know, a weak side rotation and blocked Tiago Splitter at the front of the rim. Kyle Lowry, you know, he he's an inventive rim protector at the at the height of his abilities, but he's not capable of such a thing. And 
LeBron also could run an offense. And then also he stepped out on Derrick Rose for, you know, a series or whatever. And so immediately a wing was like, oh, yeah, they can just do everything when they're Mm -hmm. good at it. And it's like, well, no, LeBron was good at everything. And we haven't seen anybody do that since. And so a wing today is much different than, yeah, I think we view wings as like, this is optimized basketball bigs were like oh yeah this is not optimized basketball because they're plundering big dummies and they can't do anything right and then guards were like too small they're gonna get bodied (laughs) but it's like you know wings are fallible too wings get cooked on the perimeter wings get beaten around on the inside and wings by and large don't play make even you you grab the best playmaking wings and the best playmaking centers i don't know who's coming out on top if you want to rank a group Wings are deficient in a bunch of areas, but for some reason, because the the generational players have been wings, we decide that 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 is like an infallible group of players. I tell you what, though, this isn't to say that wings don't win. It's just wings don't win as often as we think would be my estimate or just that greatest of all time players win, not wings. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And we'll see what happens this season. I mean, the Clippers are going to be super interesting, but... You know, I I do think it's weird that the narrative doesn't seem to have shifted at all, despite the fact, you know, you look at the last two champions and it's like, okay, the Warriors won last year. Andrew Wiggins was great during that playoff run. I don't think that's what people tend to conceptualize when they're like, you need great two way wings to win in the NBA. Like, is Andrew Wiggins who people have in mind? I don't think so. And, you know, the same goes for the Bucks with like Chris Middleton. It's I, some people, I guess, conceptualize Giannis as, as being a wing. I don't really think of him that way. And I think, actually, if anything, they really succeeded by having him lean into his big man skill set. So it's interesting to me that, like, given what we saw, you know, in the last two playoff runs and the last two champions, there, like, this idea still has very deep roots. Like, this idea that this is how you win. You need to compile as many wings as possible. And uh, I don't know that the evidence recently really bears that out. They're they're important. A good wing is awesome if you can find it. But there's a, I don't think there's as many stories about like, you know, there's Chris Dunn, who people were like, oh yeah, he's going to be like this guard and he's the mayor of the draft class and everyone thinks he's going to be rookie of the year. And then he just wasn't able to do classic guard stuff, like get into the mix and, uh, you know, two feet in the paint mix up the defense shoot the ball you know. like even a little bit <laughs> yeah shoot the ball even a little bit he he was awesome on defense still is and but it's like there's so many stories of wings who are like yes the promise of a wing is so sexy to nba fans and it's you know but we we, we see it with bigs too as well as like well man yeah i just I don't have a a certain answer on what wins in the NBA because we see so many different things win all the time. That's the answer that I'm looking for, honestly. Yeah, (laughs) but 100%, the NBA was wing-pilled, over-indexed on wings, obsessed, whatever, and idealized many, many players, much to their demise, I think. Okay, a couple other sort of smaller tactical things that I feel like I've seen start to really come to the forefront in the last couple of years. One is ghosting mm-hmm. um, and the other is fake dribble handoffs. I feel like in the last like two or three years, it's just, they used to be these sort of niche things that you would see a couple of teams do. And now it's like every game you're seeing every team do them multiple times a game. 
which which one of those two things is like most interesting to you as, as sort of part of like the modern NBA offense? Well, it depends who you're trying to weaponize as the keeper in those keeper plays. Uh, ghosting, we see a lot of it. You know, well, I, I actually I don't know what your main demographic of listeners is, so I, I can't. I'm not gonna. When I'm doing podcasting, I reference Raptors as like, yeah, you can look to this play, but your main demographic, I'm not sure. But there is a there's a lot of both. And it's basically it's all tied up in what is your personnel. And if you have, you know, kind of like a, a, a big slash tweener who can run a lot of dribble handoff sets and also can turn the ball downhill and then make reads while on the move or take it directly and kind of stuff a guy under the rim then the keeper play is an unlimited source, like a fountain of offense. And the Raptors, for example, Scotty Barnes, the keeper stuff I think will be fascinating to keep an eye on over the course of his career. Same with like Evan Mobley and stuff. Evan Mobley was running snug pick and rolls with his brother in college. There, There's going to be growth there. I mean, yeah. Cleveland didn't exactly harbor it last season. I'm just, there's room for stuff there. He ran and, some four or five pick and roll with Jared Allen last year, a couple of times. Right, right. And so it's like, there's things that can happen. He's another guy who like keeper stuff. Bam Adebayo is probably the most famous dribble handoff hub in the NBA. Demonis Sabonis is a dribble handoff hub. Jonas Valanciunas on occasion can be like a dribble handoff hub. He'll turn it downhill every once in a while. That is an awesome way to yeah. weaponize big men who finish at the rim well and can take two dribbles without falling over. You know what I mean? I'm leaning into the big men are dumb uh, thing that I was talking about earlier. And the ghosting stuff is like, oh yeah, imagine if you're a defender and you're worried about getting caught on a screen. Only that screen can turn into an NBA athlete sprinting full speed, 14 feet into open space, and they're a great shooter. Ghosting, especially with how lax illegal screen stuff is ghosting is a hack it is a hack in the nba landscape it's like how could you possibly defend this and i'll use the the reference that is most home to me but it's like pascal siakam is a very incredible downhill threat very inventive was great from the mid-range last year and could finish at the rim isolated against all comers and fred van vliet before he got injured was one of the most inventive uh, and just prolific three-point shooters in the NBA. They run a ghost screen. How do you how do you tackle that? Somebody's going to be open. You're going to give up something. It's kind of like when the pick and roll first came out, and especially because of how the illegal defense rules were intertwined with how to guard the pick and roll at that time. But how do you guard the ghost screen? You I you just really can't. You have to shift the the weak side of your defense to kind of make up for it. And that's a really interesting. Uh, principle to kind of throw onto defenses now it's like oh yeah you can ghost so you're not just like thinking about tagging a roller or zoning up the weak side there also might just be like an incredible shooter running into your space so just be aware of that yeah and and then it it makes the strong side and then even with the ghost depending on how you kind of the framework of your offense you might have like a four on three on that side or something like that so i don't know there there will be something that defenses do to try and equalize this. But I think the ghost screen, definitely considering how important three-point shooting is, that that's the hack. That's the big deal for sure. Yeah, and just for the any listeners who don't know what, what ghosting is, is, it's basically when a player comes up to set a screen but doesn't actually set the screen, just sort of 
jets out to the three-point line. And it's very similar to slipping, but slipping is more so going toward the rim. And slipping also, it's kind of like you do set the screen maybe for a second and then you slip Mm -hmm. out, whereas ghosting, you never actually make contact. And it just creates all this kind of confusion, especially for teams that like to switch because they think they're about to switch, but then suddenly like no contact's been made on the screen. And that like one moment of like confusion or indecision just leaves a shooter open above the three-point line. And you'll see a lot of teams like Memphis in particular where they run something called horns flare where they have like two guys set up at the elbow in like a horns alignment. And one guy will come up to set like the initial ball screen and he'll ghost it. And then the guy at the other elbow will simultaneously set a flare screen for that guy. So in case the defender wasn't like trailing the play enough, he's then going to run into a flare screen from like a big man at the opposite elbow. And that's just going to give Desmond Bain all kinds of daylight. Um, Like you said, it's a really good hack for offense and one that I'm curious to see how defenses can respond to the best defenses that I watched last year were the ones that were actually just like able to anticipate the ghost screens and kind of sit on them. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, Memphis's defense, I think was one of the best at doing that, particularly when jaw was out of the lineup. So maybe running it as often as they did made them well prepared to defend it at the other end. Um, in terms of offense being just hard to stop, in a lot of ways, you know, in spite of all the, the the stuff we talked about, about, you know, defensive evolution. How much better do you think offense can get? Like, do you think we're, we're kind of like at the, I don't know if you, did you watch this Ben Taylor video that he put out, like about just sort of the, the, the way that rule interpretation has changed over the years and how that has sort of favored offensive players. It was a really good video. Did you see I that? Haven't, I haven't seen that. I've seen the derivative thoughts about it. And I, in my commentary before have likened uh james harden to a lawyer searching for precedent but i I didn't actually see the video that that ben taylor made um yeah so i mean it was just a fantastic video ben taylor he's like you know maybe maybe the best he's he's thinking about basketball (laughs) yeah uh he's unbelievable um but yeah it was really with just like incredible archival video evidence showing the way that not through like rule changes, but through rule interpretation, the game has like changed so dramatically over the past few decades in ways that really favor offense. Um, And that goes toward, you know, ball handling and the way that like traveling is called differently now, the way that, you know, fouls are called differently now, where like it used to be, if a player even leaned slightly into a defender, it would be an offensive foul. You know, it didn't matter if that guy fell over or how much contact there was. It was an offensive foul, whereas now an offensive player can flail into a defender and it, it can still be called a defensive foul. So I thought that was really interesting and like not something I've thought too much about in terms of like why offense has exploded the way that it has. But I'm thinking about it now and I'm just wondering like, like shot profile optimization, for example. How close are we to just like the absolute optimized league-wide shot profile? Because this was something I was tracking early in the season. Rim frequency has started to decline in the last couple of years. It's subtle, but it's happening. And the reason that's interesting to me is that for, for the longest time when we were seeing the three-point boom, like the vast majority of the shots that were being relocated behind the arc were just long mid-rangers. And that was happening up until like three years ago. And for the last three seasons, long two-point frequency has been totally stable. About 10% of all shots across the league. That hasn't changed. 
three-point frequency is still going up. It's not accelerating at the rate it once was, but still going up. So now those shots have to start coming from other places. And now we're starting to see some of these rim shots being relocated out to three. And I mean, are we at the tipping point with that? You know, are we, are we going to see a point where that starts to flatten out? And maybe this is as, as good as it gets for offense in terms of the shots that they're taking. What do you think about that? That's interesting because the stars will find ways to make shots that aren't at the rim and the rim volume dipping because teams like, especially the Raptors, despite being a very small team, were in the the top half. I think they were per cleaning glass, uh, the 13th best team at keeping teams away from the rim, despite being very small and despite being in positions where it's like recover and keep guys the you make sure that the pickup point is farther away. The bucks are another really good example of a team. That's like, yeah, shoot your threes, do your thing. And we're going to see if we can run out on them. And then you're moving, probably moving the possessions away from stars at times, which so stars have to be inventive in getting to shots that aren't at the rim because of how defenses load up. And also, however many of the past years of the NBA has been teaching role players that, hey, you don't have to have much of that in-between game and you don't have to have like much of a dribble and uh, advantage creation to get to the rim and all that kind of stuff and, and find gaps. We mostly just want you to shoot. So I think it's the fact that it's like players aren't taking that, at, that advantage into the paint because it's like it's clogged, it's hard to navigate because I haven't, those skills haven't been in incentivized perhaps in this new era this this new crop of wings and stuff like that maybe some combos and so i'm gonna sidestep into a three and if and also like we talk about ghosting or you know horns flare stuff like that there's so many plays now that just is that exist in the periphery of the court whereas a lot of plays were interior for a long time and and it took a while for the NBA, even as shooters got better, to start moving those sets up to kind of uh, set them up like, OK, we're looking strictly for a three. And it's not like Darvin Ham, we're looking for a hammer play for a three. It's like these insane, everything's above the break, not a thing happening below it. And so it's the principles, the principles of what they want to do offensively, I think. And then on top of that, it's there's a little bit of skill erosion in the NBA in certain facets of the game, probably. I do think it's, it's worth noting that part of that declining rim frequency is very likely the result of these paint packing schemes. Like I think the, Mm -hmm. the, the 2018, 19 bucks sort of changed defense in a way with, with the way that they decided to prioritize interior defense at the expense of giving up a lot of threes. And the success they had in doing that spawned a lot of imitators. And uh, some of the teams that are doing that now are doing it in completely different ways. Like you watch the Raptors defense and it's like, it doesn't look anything like what the Bucks do, how they how they have played defense over the last few years. But uh, the net effect is kind of the same where they're trying to limit rim shots at all costs and they're giving up a ton of threes as a result. And, you know, in a lot of cases, winning that trade-off um, so I do think that's probably part of it, right? Is it is it that teams have stopped going to the rim or that they've recognized that going to the rim maybe isn't as profitable with the way that it's barricaded now? So why don't we take advantage of what these defenses are giving up and just shoot more jumpers? 
So I'm just, yeah, I look, I look at all that and I'm wondering, okay, is, is offense, is offensive rating going to like kind of continue on the steady incline or are we starting to see it taper off and maybe tilt back toward the defense? And that's where I get back like to that Ben Taylor video and wonder yep. whether we start to see, like, you know, we saw last year with the points of emphasis, right? Um, do we see it continue in that direction? Do they outlaw the rip through move? You know, things that are going to maybe tilt the scales back in the defense's favor. It's yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing is we saw offensive rating was in a really strange place for the first like what 30 games, maybe. And then once again, that I didn't see the video, but I understand like the interpretation of how defense impacts offense, especially as fouling goes, that changed. There was a point in the season where that absolutely changed. And the Raptors, oddly enough, were a team who they Man, those new rules where the new points of emphasis where they're like, oh, we get to be a little bit more physical. They went buck wild. And then it started getting called different. And then it was not so good. And then they had to readjust. And it was more about ground coverage than it was about mugging people. But uh, yeah, defense, if they don't get help via... That's why defense to me, honestly, is way more interesting than offense for the past however many years. Because defense has nothing helping them. And it's just like, be really inventive. Use kinetic energy. Never, like once a player's in motion, always keep him in motion. That way he doesn't have to stop and start and he can just cover the floor and then have those five guys do it. And if they can share a brain, please do that. And like, that's the answer on defense. Whereas offense is just like, don't touch me. If you touch me, I will scream. You know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> so defense has been really interesting for a while. Yeah. That, that feels like a good segue into the piece you wrote was it yesterday that you published it about, about the Raptors innovative yeah. defense? Um, tremendous piece. And I think just really spotlighted what makes the Raptors so interesting. Give us the cliffs notes about that and kind of what you're looking for from this Raptors team this coming season as they look to, I don't know, maybe evolve a little bit past what might've been seen as a gimmicky defense last year. Like, does it have staying power? Are they going to try and do some new things? Like what, What's it going to look like this year and what are you looking for? So the cliff notes is that the Raptors had a very strong defense and then the worst defense in the league. And then they had a very strong defense again. And then in the playoffs, they had historically poor defensive performances against the 76ers. This does not paint the picture of consistency. And I'm somebody who I, you know, you and I both, we like to pay attention to the the trends as far as what's working play style wise. And then even a little bit more digging into X's and O's and stuff. And I know on the offensive side of the ball, I people who listen to my podcast know I harp on, I whinge. I'm like, oh, could they do this offensively? I'd really like to see that. Why don't they? And so I was like, why don't I try and see what they can do defensively? And basically I, wa I watched, a, well, I've seen every game however many times and I watch a lot of film and I kind of wanted to think, where do these principles come from? And what are the newest defensive principles in the NBA? How do the Raptors innovate from this point? And I came to the idea is like, I don't know if there's innovation left at this point, probably just troubleshooting because the Raptors, and this is in the piece, but they're not the first team to go long. Milwaukee did it, what, six, seven years ago? They tried it. And, you know, they, they had some, I think they were second in defensive rating one of the years. And... Yeah, sorry, also just teams... to interrupt you there, it, yeah. they were second. And, and it 
feeds perfectly into the, like this idea of being inconsistent uh, or just getting figured out when you're doing the right. same thing because they were second the first year that Jason Kidd was there. And the next year, I think they were like 27th doing the exact same thing. So you have to kind of change up, I think, mm-hmm. in order to keep offenses guessing about what you're going to do. Right. And that's the first person I heard use this term was Blake Murphy, but scheme prepare- preparedness. I didn't put it in the piece, but that's an interesting aspect of this and one that you and I, I'm sure in our coverage of the NBA and stuff, we'll be talking about for a long time. But the Raptors, they're they're a team who they did the length thing and then they also did what Miami is doing and what Minnesota was doing a little bit. And they did all of the crazy, heavy motion um, defensive principles and, and schemes that nobody has packaged with just the length thing yet. And so the Raptors were this unique high watermark of just going in on length and then also marrying that with insane defensive principles. And so they were doing everything. And the reason why Pascal Siakam led the league in closeouts wasn't because the Raptors designed their defense so that it's always Pascal closing out. It's because Pascal was at the back end of the defense a lot of times looking at someone miss a rotation and going, oh my God, let me get out to a guy. And so the Raptors are always in motion. And I want to see like, is there something they're leaving on the table? And the only thing they could possibly be leaving on the table in my mind is a certain type of player who makes it so that they don't have to to defend the rim. They don't have to throw a bunch of guys at it. A good center who you know similar to Thaddeus Young who doesn't have the fastest foot speed but is really smart at moving in the middle of the Raptors defense has shortcuts that kind of stuff the same way that Marcus all Marcus all was fantastic in a very active Raptors defense that doesn't mean he was active it meant that he was the calm in the middle of the storm that was you know dissuading a lot of the stuff at the rim and they still were able to create more turnovers with a more conservative defense with Marcus all than the helter skelter stuff they were doing last year and so the biggest takeaway i had was like i didn't specifically say the the drop conversation because i want to write about drop and the raptors i know you and i both love precious achua and his versatility is in pick and roll stuff especially so i want to write about that separately but the raptors probably have to go back to at times more conservative schemes and the conservative stuff will be the knuckleball you know what mm. I mean? Like the, the innovation isn't innovation. It's just like, you know, retrofitting something probably. That was uh, long-winded. No, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was perfect. Uh, and I think like the Raptors sort of embody so many of the, of the things that we have talked about in the course of this conversation. Like they are in a lot of ways, I feel uh, on that cutting edge in terms of just trying different things and seeing where it can take them. And hey, maybe this is a thing and maybe it'll be something we continue to do, or maybe it's something we just try as like a, a patchwork, you know, a stopgap this year. And then we throw it away because it doesn't work with our next personnel group, you know? And I think, you know, really to not be afraid to fail. Like that's the thing that has maybe stuck out to me. And I kind of like, I've maybe given Nick nurse and his coaching staff more flack than most for the helter skelter defense stuff. And I do think there's a method to the madness in terms of just getting that defense prepared for basically any kind of situation. I think there's something to that. Uh, and I really respect him and that staff for, for sticking to their guns, even when it doesn't seem to be working. You know, riding out a month where they can be dead last in defensive efficiency and know that they're eventually going to pull themselves out of it. That's Mike Prado when I was talking to him about this. 
I think he posed it to me as like the Raptors defense isn't versatile. They just do like the most versatile type of defense and that's all they do. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm in the same boat as you is that I, I criticized that defense for a long. I was like, you, why not do something a little bit more conservative? Like you have guys like Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, Fred Van Vliet. You're not all, you don't have to be in rotation. These guys are stoppers if you let them be. But then I found like this, I don't know, Zen state at some point in the season where I was like, I think they're playing the type of basketball they have to play given the roster. And I haven't, and we still don't know whether that roster is their true vision or they're attaching a vision to the roster, I think. And so, yeah, they're of be interesting, man. Play interesting basketball and, you know, be on the cutting edge, like you said. Why not try things out? 100%. Okay. With that in mind, last question for you. We, we can uh, make it a quick one. Who to you is the most interesting team in the league that nobody is talking about right now? I mean, Minnesota maybe is one, but because of the Rudy Gobert thing. Okay, wait, I have a hot take for you. Might the Pelicans win the championship? Yes, they might. <laughs> yes, right? they might. Right? That team is insane. That team um, rocks, dude. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so tell me what... What is so interesting to you about the Pelicans? Okay, so we talked about uh, Jason Tatum having limitations as a passer and stuff like that. We talked about defense, and we talked about having guys who just kind of break the convention so that you get advantages regardless. Uh, The Pelicans, if they can bridge the gap of Zion's defense, they have Zion who will break everything offensively. They have Brandon Ingram who can run an offense and create looks. They have a bunch of interesting players who defend the hell out of their position, shoot the three ball, and can on occasion attack a closeout and then move the ball to an open shooter or finish at the rim. And they defend. They And, and they have Jonas. You know, like there's just so much good stuff going on in, in New Orleans. They were such an interesting team last year. I know people who thought New Orleans might have beat the Suns. They obviously didn't end up doing it, but I didn't think it was crazy to think that New Orleans had a ceiling. And Zion, if everything breaks right, I I don't think people have forgotten how good Zion can be, but they might be overlooking, oh, wow, the Pelicans were really great and intriguing, and then they get Zion. That team, they could win, honestly. I, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be my bet. Not that I bet, but like that wouldn't be what I would say, this is going to happen. But if somebody told me the Pelicans are going in, I could say, I see the vision, bro. I see what you're doing there. I think people have forgotten how good Zion can be. I really do. Like, I just don't. Maybe, the way that yeah. they talk about it. And, and it's fair because he hasn't played and he has to play before, you know, he has to prove he can stay on the court uh, for all this theoretical stuff to uh, become tangible. But like his last season, he averaged 27 points on 65% true shooting. And he took 13 and a half shots a game in the restricted area. The next closest guy to him had nine. Like Giannis was number two with nine. That's how much more frequently he was getting to the rim than anybody else in the league. And we just figured out the rim frequency drop. Zion was injured. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, but this is... So I, I actually mentioned this last year, and this is why the Pelicans were so interesting to me last year and didn't come to fruition because Zion never came back. But now looking ahead to this season when, you know, knock on wood, he's going to play. 
I don't know that there's any defense out there that's really equipped to deal with like the interior scoring punch of both him and JV. So talking about like the, you know, teams not going to the rim anymore, maybe because defenses are loading up, you know, they're packing the paint. They've got, they're playing a one man zone with a seven footer under the basket. So, okay, we'll just shoot jump shots. What if there was a team that said, no, rather than trying to counter your defense by shooting jumpers, we're just going to smash down that wall and take away the thing that makes your defense good. That's what I want to see. And that's why the Pelicans are so interesting to me. And like, they actually like, they've put a good amount of shooting now around those mm-hmm. two guys with, with Ingram and CJ, even Devonte Graham. I mean, he had a bad season last year. He still shot like 39% on catch and shoot threes. And Herb Jones is obviously there to kind of like help tie the defense together. Uh, I think they're super interesting. And yeah, I would be surprised, I guess, if they won the championship, but I don't think it's off the table. I think Zion is that good, and I do think people have maybe forgotten that. Firmly on the table, I would I would think so too. Who's the Trey Murphy the third, right? There's yes. also like insane shooting, maybe that like who knows how often they go to that, but they had some really fun set plays for him last year that just that freedom up, not at the three point line, but like six feet beyond it. And it's like, it's a good shot. Let them take it. Yeah, that team. I'm, I'm yeah. glad you're on the same page because I was trying to think about it. And then I was like, I, I had this thought probably like a week ago. And I was like, might they, like the Pelicans could win a championship. Could they not? And yeah, that's I'm glad we've had this conversation because I haven't had this conversation with anybody else. But like, why the hell wouldn't they be able to win? That that team is fascinating yeah. to me. D- defense is the reason. Like you're you're starting yeah, totally. Yeah, you're starting Zion and McCollum together. And like I know, I think JV is like an underrated defender. I think people think he's worse at defense than he actually is. But he's a he's a limited defender. Like mm-hmm. he he's not scheme versatile. And so starting those three guys, I think maybe puts a hard ceiling on how good your defense can be. I think they have a chance to be maybe the number one offense in the league. So like, can they get to league average on defense? and be the number one offense and is that good enough like that's kind of how i'm gaming it out for them and and to the offensive point like the people are skeptical because they're like well you've got so many guys who need the ball like ingram needs the ball zion needs the ball cj needs the ball jv needs the ball and and i just don't really see that as a problem because i think zion is actually an incredible off-ball player like such a good cutter and you know, to people making the point about, well, well, JV is just a terrible fit next to Zion because he doesn't space the floor. It's Steven Adams all over again. Like, no, it's not because JV commands attention. He has post gravity. He will draw two to the ball and that's going to unleash Zion, like whether he's in the dunker spot or cutting. And plus those two guys are going to absolutely mash on the offensive glass. Like they should lead the, the league in offensive rebound rate as well. So I'm looking at it. And I'm like, okay, like they have these four guys who kind of do want to operate with the ball in their hands. That's also four guys who can pretty consistently draw two. And I think there's a lot of power in that. Like I'm looking at that as what should be, if Zion's healthy, a surefire top five offense. And if you want to dig down even on the the post-gravity thing, right, is that a lot of teams, and especially like a team like Miami that is a, in the Eastern Conference and plays, you know, like this this brand of basketball that are like, we can keep you from the rim. That doesn't mean they defend the rim well statically. Like if you put Bam Adebayo on JV, I don't know, man, like that's tough. It's the same thing that the Raptors ran into, right? The Raptors really good at if it's a guard or a wing driving, they could get guys to miss. Precious Achua could force misses. Pascal could force misses. Boucher could force misses. Sure, 
But if a guy gets the ball on the offensive glass, that's the points per possession is two. Like the ball is going back in. Or if there's like a lay down or like this little entry pass, it's like these guys can't just stand dudes up at the rim. And there's a lot of teams that are in that in-between space that they couldn't stand up JV. They couldn't stand up Zion. So what happens? Zion, despite not having traditional spacing, if he's standing at like 14 feet, you can't like it's the fear isn't, oh, he's going to get the ball and take a 14 foot jumper. It's like, oh, he has the ball in space at 14 feet. He's going to dunk on four people at the same time. And JV, it's the same principle It's like he's in close enough. Um, like he's close enough to the basket that everything worries you. So stick him. So the driving lanes don't necessarily have to be like fudged up. They, they may still be available because people are so worried about if Brandon Ingram comes off a screen and somebody steps over and it's like, do you want Zion to get like a little handoff 11 feet from the rim? I don't personally. I think my defense would struggle immensely with that. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's an interesting wrinkle too. Yeah. That's without even getting into, you know, what are you going to do as a defense when you're facing like an inverted pick and roll with Zion and CJ McCollum, you know? Too much. Hey, maybe even a ghosted screen, right? Like it's just exactly. a lot going on. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's leave that conversation there. Uh, I will give you the floor, Samson, to plug anything you want to plug. Self-promote. Do your thing. Oh, man. I'm actually, usually I don't do this, but this is going to be a big year, so I'll do it. Uh, I'm going to be like in person doing credentialed work for the first season. I've been doing for the longest time all this analysis-based work that I tried to do valuable work because I was alienated from the personal conversations and like the personal coverage of, of being of being there. You've done so much great work that was based off of conversations with players. And I want to be able to do that. And I think I can supplement my work with that this year. So Raptors Republic, I'll be doing so much work like that. I'm currently doing an outside looking in series where I talk to somebody from every market, every fan base to kind of gauge consensus on the Raptors and then allow you know, people who listen to my podcast to kind of get involved in how the NBA works, although they could probably do it much faster if they listen to Pound the Rock. Um, <laughs> but I, I tell you, I think the, the work will be really good this year, and most of it will be over at RaptorsRepublic.com. And there's, man, there's a lot of great people writing there and upcoming people and people who've been around for a while. So uh, if you want to support me and you thought the things I said on this podcast were like nice and good and insightful, awesome thank you but there's a bunch of other great people at raptors republic as well um especially since blake murphy left you know so <laughs> well i can only speak for myself but i thought the things you said on this podcast were nice and good and awesome so thank you for sharing your insights and your time really appreciate you coming on and looking forward to our next convo maybe even in person yeah um, man, we'll make it happen so thank you samson we're gonna put a bow on this here for myself, Joe Wolfon, for Joseph Cacharo, who should be back with me next week. Uh, this has been Pound the Rock. We will talk to you all soon. Mm -hmm.